Dispatches from Afghanistan. Three months of life under the Taliban rule, how scams target evacuation efforts and the future of mining. It is hard to believe that it has been more than three months since the Taliban took the presidential palace. But Afghans are resilient people and life goes on, even without the buzz of music and foreign cash flow. Cafes and restaurants are still open and many can be spotted smoking cigarettes or the popular water pipe known as hookah. Commercial airplanes have resumed transits across the country and to some international destinations such as Islamabad and Abu Dhabi. Hotels lure tourists and cars continue to clog the narrow and ancient Kabul streets. Yet the doom and gloom of a humanitarian catastrophe cling as the winter winds roll in and snow glazes the serrated mountains of the beautiful, bleeding country. It is a dilemma that the United States and much of the international community will be forced to painfully reconcile with, either recognize the new Taliban regime and release the funds that could stop innocent Afghans from starving to death, or pariah the country and hold out for a longer game in the hopes the regime eliminates terrorism and values human rights. But let's not be tone deaf here. Before 2001, there was no government as isolated as the Taliban. Nations refused to recognize them and refused to give them money. But you know who did provide them with just a couple of million to marginally stay afloat? Osama bin Laden. How scams target evacuation efforts in Afghanistan. Earlier this month, the decimated bodies of four Afghans, two men and two women, were discovered in Mazar-e-Sharif, the capital of the northern Balkh province, several days after being reported missing. One of the dead, Frizan Sanfi, was a prominent women's rights activist in the city and thus one of the vulnerable and deeply desperate to flee the beleaguered country following the August Taliban takeover. An individual contacted the four, opposing to be operating evacuation flights. Only when the victim showed up to the designated meeting point to be transported to a supposed flight, their money and belongings were taken along with their lives. According to Kari Sayed Hosti, spokesperson for the Siraj Haqqani-run Ministry of the Interior, two suspects confessed during questioning, triggering a deeper probe into what other players were involved. One Afghan in touch with the grieving family said that this endeavour was incredibly organised, extended over several days. The person on the other end was aware of their name and personal information. Only the searing murder is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to an ever-evolving rash of criminals and organised criminal enterprises cashing in on the frantic US departure from Afghanistan after two decades at war and exploiting the many pleading for a new start abroad. Since the tragedy, several Afghans have come forward with chilling tales of having been contacted via WhatsApp under the guise of being a U.S. evacuation authority and collecting the exposed individual's private details, documents, and identification cards. One such scam number answered, speaking the local Afghan language of Dari and claiming that they can only help if you have a case number with the U.S. State Department and that this message will be communicated once verified. A second number we tried calling was the cell phone provider MTM's customer care line, and a third was turned off. Yet sometimes, escaping hopefuls are also forced to pay vast sums of money up front, with criminal outfits cleaning out their life savings. 
It seems to be quite organised because very often the numbers are not Afghanistan. The calls are coming from overseas numbers like America and the UK, so people then think it must be legit. This isn't a random thing, observes one Kabul-based Western security professional. It is very well thought out. People are so desperate. We've seen a lot of this and the schemes will only escalate. The security pro notes that a standard racket is to claim to be taking Kabul residents to Hkaya, the airport, but at last minute insisting that they must pay thousands of dollars to instead be driven 300 miles north because the flight, quote unquote, changed to Mazar Sharif. And then suddenly, the prey is informed that the evacuation flight was cancelled at the last minute. Thus, they must fork out copious amounts more to be transported back another 10 hours on that heinous journey home. What life is like under the Afghan Taliban. Three months ago, a band-aid was ripped from a bullet wound. Ashraf, President Ashraf Gandhi fled the presidential palace on the searing Sunday afternoon of August 15, paving the way for the encroaching Taliban to storm right in without a crescendo of bullets. Two weeks later, the last US evacuation aircraft rose into Kabul's night sky from the Hamid Karzai International Airport, dramatically drawing to a close a bitter and bloody 20-year war. So what has become of life under the Taliban three months into their ironclad rule over Afghanistan? Indeed, it marks a bizarre and brash manoeuvre from insurgency and into forming a government in charge of 38 million people. Much of the leadership has little experience running formal procedures, a far cry from wielding an AK-47 as a mountain militia. Those in top positions typically prefer to conduct business inside a mosque or away from the confines of an office. If they do show up, it is usually only for a few hours, with ministries and directorates effectively shutting shop after 2pm. The Taliban is in over its head, and it is all coming at a time when the nation is on the brink of a harrowing economic collapse. In the streets, from Kabul to Kandahar to Host and beyond, life on the surface has resumed. Only Afghans are becoming hungrier, poorer, and more desperate and afraid by the day. In less than 12 weeks, the Afghani currency has devalued from around 73 AFG to 1 US dollar to 92 AFG. It is expected only to get worse. We rely purely on Allah, Gauz Yudin, 35, who sells Afghan fried food on the street, tells me with a brave smile. Three months into the Taliban rule, economic, humanitarian and security catastrophe exists. On a quiet late fall afternoon, groups of women huddle over overflowing rice plates and tea in the family garden section of a popular Kabul cafe. Since the sudden Taliban takeover on August 15, it has remained a safe space for all walks of life to venture from their homes until now. You are a journalist? I don't think so. One lanky Afghan man sneers at me, interrupting lunch and claiming to be Taliban intelligence. Where is your identification? It marks the first time since the dramatic government change that such an intrusion in a private place has unfurled. It left me with an unsettling sensation of what is to come as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan consolidates controlling powers across the struggling nation of 38 million. Initially, crime rates drastically dropped throughout the Taliban's early tenure, with mafia groups and lone wolf robbers fearing a return of the hand chopping and public hangings that punctured the Taliban rule of the 1990s. 
But when it became evident that the new regime would be holding off on draconian punishments in a desperate bid for international recognition, the security situation has slipped again. What's more, the ascent of terrorist outfits such as ISIS-K, which carries out almost daily attacks, has left many on edge. On the margins of Jalalabad, an ISIS stronghold in the east, decapitated bodies have become a signature site for the wounded and worried. However, the rapidly unraveling sense of safety is hardly the biggest problem for Afghans left behind. Three months since the answer of the US-backed government, and Afghanistan is the embodiment of a country on the fringe of falling apart. And most flagrant is the devastating economic crisis hitting every Afghan hard. Shah Agar, 48, a currency exchange teller in the Sharanao district of Kabul, stresses that people cannot withdraw US dollars, and when they try to exchange, it is at a considerable loss. If it continues the same, we will have lots of worries because people are getting poorer by the day, he says wearily. People are selling the household items to provide for their families, like oil and other food items. That is affecting the economy because at the end of the day, the people, they just won't have anything. The Afghani currency is devaluing by the day. Three months ago, it stood at around 73 Afghanis. Now it is crumbled to around 95. There are big concerns with the Afghanis' devaluation, and a big problem we have is with outward international payments and interbank transactions. The outward transactions have stopped. Transactions can take place only if on a few items, and not all traders can transfer money, laments Mohammed Mahmoud Azori, 41, Zone Deputy of Operation for the state-run New Kabul Bank. Nothing is coming in. Afghanistan's front lines. Inside China and Russia's geopolitical mind frenzy. Deep inside the voluptuous valleys of Afghanistan's isolated and least populated province, Noristan, young locals, their eyelashes caked in debris, blast dynamite through a cave wall in a desperate bid to unearth treasures. The young men, just 16 and 23, have placed thin mattresses inside their dark cave. Further down the winding lush mountain range, they live with a bevy of other miners in a one-room stone hut. Life, day and night, revolves around scouring the untapped field for enough gems, from tourmaline, kunzite, aquamarine and beryl, to sell at the local markets to make ends meet. It remains a deeply dangerous vocation, with the men sharing stories about friends dying and becoming disabled due to blasting and entire mines collapsing. Only now, the dominance in the mining sector across that vast valley is in jeopardy. The miners claim they have spotted foreigners, possibly Russians, surveying the mineral-rich area. But if they came in, maybe we can get a proper salary and it'll be safer, one of the young miners says, stressing that they welcomed the idea of outsides entering. The United States Department of Defense has estimated that Afghanistan rests atop more than one trillion in natural resources from precious and semi-precious stones, gold, copper, iron, and lithium, to ore and hydrocarbons, all right for large-scale mining. With the United States departed from the region and the Taliban in charge, countries hostile to American interests have the ability to make it rich. In September, the Taliban top echelons announced their government would chiefly depend on China for financial assistance, prompting the US and other global monetary bodies, such as the World Bank and International International Monetary Front to freeze aid. 
The outside interest in Afghanistan mines comes as the Taliban undergoes a dire financial crisis while also controlling, for the first time in history, the picturesque Pangaea province, the only parcel of Afghanistan they could not domineer during their last reign from 1996 to 2001. Half the wealth of Afghanistan is in Pangaea, Haji Assad, a Taliban commander stationed at the heart of the neighbouring valley, boasts, and now we have it. And you can click in the links to read more about all those stories. And for those interested in learning more about the aftermath of war, please pick up a copy of my latest book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. You can also listen to a podcast uh, that was recorded with my friend, Egyptian-based friend Tahir. Thanks again for your support. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter and also my wonderful photographer who supplied the photos for this substack. He is at at Jake Simkin Photos. And please consider a paid subscription so that we can continue to do this work.